0: Welcome to episode 13 of Poetry Worth Hearing, hosted by me, Kathleen McPhillamy, and with music by Alex Heen. In this episode, we focus on form, a very wide topic. In fact, as Mimi Calvati says in her interview, almost as wide as poetry itself. Form can extend from traditional fixed forms to the most experimental, free or open writing. This episode does not take sides, but includes contributions from across the spectrum where poets read a poem and explain the choices they have made with form. There is also, as I said, an interview with Mimi Calvati, poet, founder of the Poetry School and Poetic Mentor as well as an extended reading from Claire Cox, who, as a prize-winning poet and editor of Ignition Press, is well-placed to give some of her ideas about form. We begin with a poem by Sharon Green, A Sestina, which
1: considers the two poles of the debate. Hello, my name's Sharon Green and I've chosen to read A Sestina. It's a fixed-verse form consisting of six stanzas of six lines each, normally followed by a three-line envoi. The words that end each line of the first stanza are used as line endings in each of the following stanzas, rotated in a set pattern. I have chosen to, to write a rhyming sestina, and the six words that I'm using are forms, norms, Lies, skies, free and be. The theme of my poem is a debate on the value of forms in poetry and I've called it Where the Truth Lies. Let yourself be the you you want to be. The path to true peace is a stranger to lies. If you follow me, you too will be free. Floating on cotton clouds up in the skies. Hurl away habits and nudge off all norms. Abstract is true art, so fling off all forms. You'll be at sea if you cast away forms. Bobbing about is just how you will be. Lack of constriction is where chaos lies. In verse as in life, nout good can be free. The song of a sonnet soars to the skies there can be no shame in following norms no shame may be but my brain numbs with norms frankly my dear there is no fun in forms disastrous duty is all it can be alliteration is littered with lies refrains restrain you will never be free meter so measured just sullies the skies Sorry, I'm sick of this slush about skies. Civilization is centred on norms. We'd all be mush if we didn't have forms. Poetry helps us define how to be. Yes, with some licence we have scope for lies. But structures like ladders can set us free. Chill out, don't freak out. My opinion's free. You cannot curtail my reach for the skies. But if you insist... On sticking to norms, you may spend your life completing those forms. Pity personified is what you'll be, the inverse of happy, drowning in lies. Let's bury this tiff, this way no peace lies. If we've time to rhyme, we are truly free. There's room for all poets under the skies. Deeply devoted to challenging norms, There's truth in our words, with or without forms, even though we know not what we may be. So let's follow forms or else ignore norms. Creativity lies in open skies. Set yourself free, be what you want to be. By the way, you can find more
0: extended discussion, as well as information about the poets and texts of poems, on Biz. And now, Mimi Calvati. Mimi was born in Iran, but since she was six, has lived in Britain, where she has had a long and influential career in poetry. Here she talks about earlier and later influences on her work and gives us some of her ideas about form.
2: What started me has got, in a way, two different narratives. One is the narrative that I've always been familiar with, which I'll tell you in a minute. And the other one is a kind of narrative or tracing it back that I've only done recently and become aware of recently and realized, oh, my whole relationship with poetry goes way back to childhood. But the official version, if you like, is that I went to drama school because I wanted to be a theatre director. But then I had two small children and I was on my own as a single parent. So it was, practically speaking, very difficult to continue to work in the theatre. And my lovely neighbour said, oh, well, why don't you go on a writing course at this place called Arvon? and do some script writing and maybe for radio and maybe make a bit of money. And I signed up for this course at Arvon in Devon, and the course was billed as script writing slash poetry. So I arrived with a very decrepit sort of half-baked script that I'd written supposedly for radio. And well, the long and the short of it, is that nobody was at all interested either in this script or really in script writing. Everyone was doing poetry. And I was just told, I'll oh, go and write some poems. So I sort of gulped and went off and wrote a poem about black and white cows that were outside my window. <laughs> and I continued writing poetry on that week. Somehow the penny dropped, and I thought, oh, this is good. Of course, it didn't answer any of my problems financially or in any other way. So At that time, I was 42, so relatively late, but maybe for women, you know, we do tend to start later. But it seemed to me to come a bit out of the blue. But I started tracing it back, and I think first I traced it back to theatre, And thinking, oh, all those years of doing Shakespeare and verse drama and so on. Well, of course, that went into my blood, not least because you have to learn huge, enormous chunks of it by heart. And then going further back to, in fact, when I first came to England, probably, I was sent to the Isle of Wight when I was six And I think within a year, I'd forgotten my first language, Farsi, and had to learn English very quickly to survive. But not only to survive, but I I always felt I had to learn it perfectly and be really, really good in it, so no one could tell that I couldn't really speak it kind of thing. So when I was, I think, about eight, our school, which was a boarding school for girls, used to send children off to take part in a verse-speaking competition. And so we had to learn poems and go off and recite them on this big stage. But I have a very clear memory of reciting A. a. Milne, you know, Christopher Robin poem, um, the one about Sand Between Your Toes, and being bitterly disappointed that I came second And I realized, of course, that that process of, it's not just learning a poem by heart and reciting it, but competing with others, reciting the very same poem, which makes you, even at that very young age, actually look at the nuances of inflection, of pace, of feeling, of volume, you know, all the qualities of verse in a way. So I had a very early intimate, very intimate relationship, I think, with verse and of reading between the lines, which I continued in my work in theater and my training as an actor. And I think all of this was a really good kind of groundwork, I suppose, for later writing poetry. So it didn't really come exactly out of the blue. And then um, when I was at school, my favourite thing was something called elocution, which, um, of course, I suppose they don't have nowadays. And it sounds like elocution was teaching you how to talk properly, but it wasn't really. In fact, what it actually was was drama. Because for every elocution lesson, for every, every lesson, you were given a text by your elocution teacher which you learnt by heart, and then you went in and you recited it, and then she would pull it to pieces and put it back together again and so on. Every week I did a different text. And to this day, I think it influences my reading because, again, I, I was encouraged to read very closely, to be very aware of different rhythms and inflections and uh, different ways of interpreting the syntax and so on, much more so than attending to the subject matter. So very often I had not the faintest idea what I was talking about when reciting these texts that could have been poems, that could have been passages from the Bible. I remember very clearly doing that one, How are the mighty fallen? So very often I didn't have that contextualization of a poem, or very often if it referred to a persona or person in the poem, but all my faculties were trained forensically, fiercely onto the language. And I think to this day that's how I connect with poetry listening very very closely also to what wasn't there as well as what was Mm -hmm. there and also what was lovely about the elocution was the variety of stuff you know sometimes it could be a speech from Shakespeare or a very rhythmical poem like oh do you remember an inn Miranda do you remember an inn with a da 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 there were just glorious passages of language. I was absolutely blessed with a wonderful English teacher who was Aubrey de Selincourt, himself a classicist, a scholar, and also an author. We did the romantics. The one I didn't like so much for some reason was Shelley, quite connect with it. But I love Byron. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. I loved Coleridge. I especially loved the um, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, of course. But my great, great love to this day was Wordsworth. And I did learn huge, long, long longish passages from the Prelude or the Immortality Ode, and especially Tintin Abbey. And when I was at school, because my family were in Iran and in the holidays, I never went home. So I re- essentially grew up without a family. So there was a kind of loneliness that was my constant companion, not in a very miserable way, actually quite a lyrical way, I would say a lyrical loneliness. And so I do remember walking the long, long hill between the pine trees up to the hockey pitch, and mumbling, and I have felt a sense profound as something far more deeply interfused as dwelling as the light of, and it would go on, in this kind of, you know, sort of low rumble and murmur. It would be a sort of, it would be like somebody walking beside me, holding my hand. And it is just a lifelong sensation, which he himself so beautifully describes and I have owed to them in hours of weariness sensations sweet felt in the blood and felt along the heart and passing even into my purer mind with tranquil restoration, feelings too of unremembered pleasure, such perhaps as may have had no trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life, his little nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love, I find it hypnotic and trance-like. There's very little imagery. It's just this meditative flow of thought and feeling. Felt along the heart. I love the use of that word along. You know, it's not felt in the heart. Maybe why I have that sensation of somebody walking Alongside me, you know, the poem going alongside me in a kind of companionship. So, yes, felt in the body. I do go back to the prelude. I love um, Italian opera. I love Puccini Verdi. And I, I love all the arias. And I always think of the prelude like a sort of Puccini opera, because I only re- read what I think of as the arias. was a long gap between school and then going to drama school, where, yes, poetry did not feature in any way until I went on that Arvon course. And I was very involved in the women's movement. And I, at that time, was actually reading the feminist poets of the 80s. But as a feminist, I suppose that was when I realised we could speak about our lives. We could speak about things that were ordinary and normal for us um, as women. Because I started writing late and being the sort of person I am, I I feel like I have to learn stuff. So I didn't have any kind of sensible reading trajectory. It was completely ad hoc and random and also slightly panic-stricken because there was just so much to read. But I read this, that and the other from all different kinds of poetry, both contemporary, Mm -hmm. classical, as one does in fiction. But there were poets who directly influenced me because I was looking to them to learn specific things. For example, in my second collection, um, the first one was just, you know, a usual kind of miscellany of everything you've written up to that point. But at that point, I was thinking that I don't understand the line break in free verse. And so I was reading at the time um, the early work of Jory Graham, who is a brilliant? Well, there ought to be a word for a line breaker. Anyway, she's brilliant at lineation. So, again, I, I wasn't particularly focused on her themes or the subject matter of the poems, the beauty of the writing, and and really the form and the, and the lineation of. And then, I remember Louise Gluck's "The Wild Iris." And I was so struck by the cold authority of her voice. I think she quite frequently uses the imperative, do this, do that, do the other, be this, be that. And I loved that. I mean, to me, that was so exciting. I, I don't know that that influenced me. I wish it had. I know that I was looking for it to influence me. I think the influence is always a kind of amalgam and it's,
3: Mm.
2: you know, each person has got a completely different amalgamation and also one's own, I don't know, do you call them limitations? I mean, I, I think Hopkins, for example, is the most miraculous poet, but in a million years I wouldn't be able to write like him. Quite often what I admire most is what I know I couldn't possibly do. And, of course, they're prose writers who, in some ways, have influenced me more in my thinking about writing. Probably my favourite writer of all time would be Virginia Woolf and particularly The Waves, which is a piece of poetry almost really from start to finish. But I was also influenced very much by Italo Calvino and his six memos for the millennium, and the one that was on lightness. At the time, this was pre-computers. I was writing on a typewriter and I was doing something like 80 drafts and using gallons of Tipex I'm thinking, well, you know, I'll be 80 and dead before I produce a book at this rate. I better just get on with it. So when I read that essay on lightness, which of course implies also speed, oh, that came like a sort of Bible for me. And I think that actually did influence my writing quite a lot, because after that, I wrote that book, Entries on Light. And of course, the title is not just the light itself, but lightness. And I completely changed my writing process. And I told myself, these are like pencil sketches. And I'll do it like Picasso did his bull. He wouldn't take the pencil off the page. He'd just do it in one very quickly. Either you got it or you didn't get it. If you didn't get it, you bin it and you do another one. And that was a learning process and probably did affect what came afterwards. And of course, people have influenced me. I'm thinking of Shahed Ali, who was a Kashmiri born American poet who really introduced American poets to the canonical ghazal. And his Mm -hmm. writing of the Ghazal and his own Ghazals, of course, I can't say influenced me. They absolutely taught me. It's almost like you can't separate form and content, but almost you can't separate form and poetry. I think on and off it becomes less or more problematic because it becomes politicized. For example, I have heard people say that the iambic pentameter is fascist. Well, you don't know what to do with statements like that. But there is this general feeling in some quarters that formal or metrical poetry is, is very right-wing or very conservative or is irrelevant in some way or is basically dead white men's poetry and all these ideas. So all I can say is that when it comes to those kind of debates, if debates is what they are, I don't really engage directly with it because I find it very, very difficult, but I practice it. So what I believe in, I do rather than expound on, carry on using forms, fixed forms or given forms if the poem requires it. I definitely am not into, I don't think one should prescribe what poets should do and what they shouldn't do. I mean, we have marvellous poets like Jory Graham, for example, who never uses rhyme or meter. On the other hand, we have Patricia Smith in America, a black American poet, one of the foremost exponents of formal verse, absolutely brilliant. I came to it all from the point of view of, I don't know anything about poetry, I better learn. And learning to met me meant, oh, I better find out what a sonnet is or what meter is or what this and that and the other. So for me, that was like serving an apprenticeship that I thought was definitely necessary as it might be for a- any other activity. But I think that you can be a brilliant poet without ever using the more formal tools, if you like, of meter particularly i would i would distinguish i mean i think the only distinction between free verse and formal verse is actually meter because you could write a sonnet in without meter and then that's that's a free verse sonnet so strictly speaking it's not really formal but there are all these different kinds of ways of differentiating without for me having any kind of hierarchy of what's more or less desirable or good or not good. What is formal anyway? How, how are you going to define it? Because even when you, when you write a free verse poem, the formal considerations of how do you shape it, how do you lineate it, all the rest of it, are very complex and, and just as important, just as powerful your choices as in metrical poetry. But I think it's a good idea if you are an apprentice poet or if you're fairly new to it to at least try things. You see, some people I think are innately really brilliant at this kind of stuff. But if you don't try it, you don't discover how brilliant you are. You might discover you're a bit hopeless, in which case, no problem. Just don't do it. Give it up. Do what you're good at. I've seen people who have discovered that they're actually brilliant at metrical verse and fixed forms and so on. And I think it's glorious to have as many tools in your toolbox, as many colours in your palette, um, so that any poem that comes to you, any draft, that says, oh, I'd like to be a Sestina, you'd be able to respond and give it what it wants. I think metre, metre is something that you can measure and you can, analyze, whereas rhythm is a quality that pertains to almost every living thing. Mm. For example, a tree has rhythm. If you think of all the thousands of poets who've used or written poems in iambic pentameter, but the massive (laughs) variations between those poems that are all written in the same meter, Mm. but they're created vastly different rhythms and other kind of effects so i think people do confuse rhythm and meter but i think it's more that rhythm doesn't have a analyzable mathematical construction that you can say oh it's you know in four beats or it's in this mode or that mode you can only use more adjectival descriptions of rhythm. There's two things really happening at the same time. There's the rhythm of how you would say something, according to your interpretation, that is one thing. And then there's the meter that is underneath it. Now they're two separate things. I think the confusion comes when people try to scan the rhetorical way of saying something rather than the metrical. I think that's why scansion, it's very helpful, rather than having, you know, with the signs, the symbols for the stresses to be written above the line, to have one line, to have two lines. So you have one line of, which is actually very subjective, which is your own interpretation of how you would say that on top. And say a line of iambic pentameter, you might only have three stresses, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? So, pair, some day. Three stresses in a rhetorical scansion. It's not really scansion. But underneath is, is yeah. there shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Form is such a big subject, isn't it? That one always feels that you haven't really, well, you can't really do it justice. But I'm a firm believer that form, however you interpret it, whether... It just means metrical poetry or form is also something that applies to all kinds of verse, whether it's free verse or metrical or whatever. But I believe it's on a kind of spectrum that on one end, it can be very technical, very precise, Very the considerations could be very microscopic, very tiny, very detailed, very if you like dry almost
0: mm.
2: uh, very conscious and at the other end the power of formal artistry which is magical and intuitive and exciting and freeing more than anything because the people think of form as a constriction whereas i think of it as a an extra freedom and everything as gradations in between those two extremes. So I'd like to put that on the table rather than take up a position at one single point along that vast spectrum.
0: So many ideas to ponder. Form, rhythm, shape, structure are differently interpreted by different people. Here is part of a conversation I had with Stephen Paul Wren about the possibility of using chemical forms or structures as forms for poems. You mentioned a collaboration you'd already done which was connected to chemical structures.
3: Yeah, so this is formulations that I wrote with Miranda Lynn Barnes that was published by Small Press. And all of the poems in that book are. The the construction of the poems are dictated by the chemical structure of the molecules that we're being inspired by. These are all compounds that exist in in plants, and a lot of them have therapeutic value. So we really go into detail thinking about the number of electrons, the, the number of different atoms in that molecule. And for example, we use those numbers to dictate how many stanzas, how many lines there are. And in some of those poems, we have very specific constraints, different rhymes or slant rhymes that really is.
0: And do those, because I'm sorry, I haven't seen this this book. Do those um, constraints relate back to the chemical structures you're talking about?
3: Yes, they do. Yes.
0: And would it be apparent to the reader, or do you explain it, or how does it work?
3: Yes, we we explain it fully in the book. Uh, We show the molecules, how, how the form for each poem was constructed, and there's even a QR code in the book where you can download a further 80 pages of explanation. Yeah, so it's all thoroughly outlined.
0: Do you need, if you're writing like this, to illustrate it.
3: Yes, so there are are chemical structures in the book as well, and it does help to visualise those molecules when we were mapping out the poems.
0: You can find details of Stephen's book on poetryworthhearing.biz. The visual aspect of a poem can often be part of its form, something which is difficult to do justice to on an audio podcast. But here is Bill Jenkinson talking about a poem from his Island Sequence, where each poem is accompanied by a photograph.
4: Figures and its Poetic Form My ambition, when preparing to write figures, was to find a form to match the enigmatic, powerful nature of its subject, a schoolteacher and his class, photographed outside, standing on the grass in a line dressed against the stone wall. The children have no shoes. This poem is part of an ongoing cycle, a dialogue with my grandfather, who took photographs, of which this is one, on a visit to the islands of Inishkir North and Inishglora in 1902. To place the poem on paper, I decided to use the photograph-album format, dominated by its rectangular frame. This says, this image is cut off from me. I know nothing of its contents beyond what I can see. Each photograph is a world in itself, black and white, stark and uncompromising, bare hillsides without trees, the cabins on Inishkir North without roads or gardens, surrounded by the sea. For me, this photograph detonates a multiple sense of loss. For my grandfather and for the islanders, they know the circle's power, in particular for the teacher and his class, who have vanished. I felt the need to hold these powerful emotions in a framework, so I set out the poem rigorously in two columns to give a strong structure of vertical and horizontal lines, like a map or a mathematical proof suggested by the composition of the photograph. To match the exposed environment of the island, I opted for a short line buffeted by white space. The islanders were self-reliant and uncontainable, so the final decision was for an open form, which would instantiate their restless struggle for existence, as well as their gentleness and care for each other. Figures Cadmos sewed his victim's teeth. A crop sprang up to fight and kill. Survivors settled, made letters, set the law. Teacher and class, their feet repeating the horizon, children's eyes half-hidden, dressed against a wall with stones like teeth. His collar, tie and suit, a strange positioning of arms and hands, as if to hold an absent register, eyes turned along the line the tallest child, well below his shoulder, they know the circle's power.
0: And you can see the poem and photograph on poetryworthhearing.biz. Rachel Klein has, a bit like Stephen Paul Wren, borrowed from another discipline for her form. This poem appears on the page in the shape of a menu.
5: I'm Rachel Klein and I live in Glastonbury. And um, the poem I'm going to read is taken from my collection, which will be out in April and published by Seren. Its title is You'll Never Be Anyone Else. The poem is... It's dedicated to the lifelong relationship and love between the writer Gertrude Stein and her partner Alice B. Toklas. And the facts are gleaned from a biography about their life. La Cuisine de la l'Amour Alice wore her blue gown and slight moustache. Wherever Gertrude went, Alice was sure to go. Their love was a chalice, their home a palace, or at least their petit chateau. Alice prepared plat de cabanon royal à la portmanteau, manteau à la crème de truffe, chemise en cocotte. Whatever Alice made, Gertrude ate her little pussy Woojum Poojum's offerings and fed bread and fish to Basket, despite the rule. Basket was a poodle. Noodle Doodle. Auntie was an ambulance that Gertrude drove, delivering medical supplies, fetching wounded from the front at Ypres. She said, there is love between someone who is someone, and another someone who is everything. Always le déjeuner sublime, rich enough for a genius of them and us, Endless soirées with all the best artists. Picasso, Cézanne, Matisse, Dali, Braque, Apollinaire, et l'oncle Tom de Coblis, et tout. Alice was her keyholder, her crème de vache, her dance card, her deal breaker, her typist très rapide, son éditeur en chef, son coup de poitrine, son fait accompli. So um, when I first wrote the poem, it was in one block, uh, a lineated poem in one block. And um, very recently, um, the editors came back from the manuscript with various changes. And one of the poems that they'd said that they were unsure about was this one. But when I actually met with the editor, one of the editors, Zoe Brigley, she suggested it, it was the layout that was the issue. And we started to go through it and break it up a bit in the usual fashion. And then uh, I can't remember how it came up, but the list of artists, I suddenly said, what if we put that in the centre? What if we centre it? And when I did that, I said, oh, looks a bit like a menu. And then I got really excited and um, following the meeting, I went through the whole poem and centred it and turned it into a menu so that the dishes had little cue separations and dividers like you do, you see on a posh menu in a haute cuisine restaurant. And it just made the thing, it just matched the fun of the poem and I love it and I hope if you do buy my book, you will enjoy it too. And I do think I've really made um, much of a homage to um, them as, and their lives, their lifestyle and their interests. I mean, basket, a poodle. Yeah, well, that's modernism, isn't it? Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you.
0: Jane Thomas has gone back to Dada to find a form which matches her content.
6: I have been working on a sequence of poems about Alzheimer's and in particular how the condition can make it difficult for people to put together uh, a sentence or can also play with their ability to communicate in a way that they would wish to. This led me to reading a bit about Neo Dada and in particular, Brian Gissin. One of his poetic forms that he introduced in the 60s was the permutation poem. This is a form where you start with a short line and then you write out every possible permutation of that line. This form I thought would suit the topic I was trying to explore. My poem is called Your Permutation Poem after August Dieter who was the first woman to be diagnosed with a condition of Alzheimer's. When she was diagnosed she said to her doctor, I have lost myself. Your Permutation Poem I have lost myself. Have I lost myself. I lost have myself. Lost I have myself. Have lost I myself? Lost have I myself. I have myself lost. Have I myself lost? I myself have lost. Myself I have lost. Have myself I lost. Myself have I lost. I lost myself have. Lost I myself have. I myself lost half, myself I lost half. Lost myself I have, myself lost I have, have lost myself I. Lost, have myself I.
0: Carl Tomlinson explains how form was determined by content in his poem
7: This is a poem which uh, I wrote for the Ashmolean Poetry in the Museum event a few years ago. If you were interested in the object to which it refers, the accession number is WA1957.51.5. The object is a card table. It's presented in the Ashmolean folded in half. And we see four segments, each of which is inlaid with ten leaves or petals. The table was donated to the Ashmolean by Lady Beatrice Enriquez in memory of her son. And I wondered... Upon reading that, why she would have given a card table in memory of her son, who I discovered was killed during the First War. Lady Beatrice Enriquez speaks to her butler one morning in late July, 1915. Would you take a shilling, MacDonald, for the telegram girl at the servant's door? Then fold this table and take it away. I shan't play cards with my ladies today. The poem is, is four lines with ten syllables in each line which reflect the uh, inlay, the design of the table that I mentioned earlier.
0: Michael Clemesh, on a slightly lighter note, also links the form of his poem to its content.
8: Learning the Argentinian Tango. The teachers instruct us to watch as they precisely place hand in hand and analyse how to properly stand before they launch. Follow the theory, try to calculate where to land as the mind struggles, how not to lose balance. But you can only find melody in a score and begin to move forward by pushing against each other more. Feeling is what opens the door to spin from axis to axis as logic cannot tango on the floor. Learning the Argentinian Tango, it's a sonnet, and it was inspired by when I decided to learn tango in in London because I wanted a bit more fun in my life. And one thing that I learned about tango is that it may be fun, but it's also a tremendous amount of work. And people who go to tango clubs in London are extremely passionate and they, they view it very much as an art form and they're very serious about it when they get into it. And I thought it would be interesting to... Uh, write a poem uh, about the experience of learning the Argentinian tango, because I think there is something poetic uh, about it. And the particular form that I chose to write this poem about tango in is a sonnet. And there was just something very, the subject matter of this poem, naturally lent itself to the sonnet form, in terms of its compression, and structure and there's a lot of technique in tango and there's a lot of I think technique in a sonnet but there's also a history of tango a prestige to it and a lineage almost and and I think you could say you can say the same about sonnets as well and in tango tango is a lot about pivoting and about angles and changing axis and and doing loads of different things at the same time, some subtle, some not so subtle. And that type of teasing aspect of tango, I feel that you, you get that in the best sonnets. So that's what I've tried to do in, in this sonnet. I've tried to convey the, to the reader the experience of learning the tango through a sonnet.
0: So, a sonnet, though not what Mimi Calvati would term a formal sonnet. So, a sonnet. Though not perhaps a formal sonnet in Mimi Calvati's terms. But isn't that something poets can do? Play around with fixed forms, as, for example, Paul Muldoon does over and over with the sonnet. Next, Andrew Dixon with a thoughtful discussion of his response to Louis MacNeice.
9: Climbing the anthologies. Was initiated by my surprise, or maybe disappointment, the superior tone of Louis MacNeice's poem, "Elegy for Minor Poets," which I came across by chance when reading other poems of his. Having given quite a lot of thought to the question why I and other people write poetry, I thought a reply to Louis MacNeice might help me clarify my own ideas, and maybe speak up for other writers. But I didn't want my response to be stodgy and bad-tempered. Not a sort of, what's your problem, mate? But a poem with some brightness and lightness to it. The right form for the poem, short stanzas, each with the same first line, and ending with a rhyming couplet, only came to me, or probably when I was out walking, when I remembered reading how upset some poets became back in McNeese's day, when they didn't get included in one anthology or another. That thinking led to the title of the poem, and from there the poem came quite quickly. I chose relatively short stanzas because I wanted to be able to hop from one thought to another, and also, importantly, to reassure the reader that my reply to McNeese was good-natured, written with a smile on my face, written to be enjoyed. And beginning each stanza with the same line, you go ahead, also helps, I think, to sustain some anticipation from the reader as to what might come next. This approach produced more stanzas than the poem could carry, especially if spoken aloud. So, I was able to polish the best of them and reach what I hope is a satisfactory result. And in more friendly mood, end each stanza with a rhyming couplet, the same as McNeese. Climbing the Anthologies A Response to Elegy for Minor Poets by Louis McNeese. You go ahead. The high ground's not for me. I'll watch from here as you climb out of sight to reappear on some distinctive peak, a high point of superiority gained by ambition and ability. You go ahead. The high ground's not for me. I'm for the foothills in the coastal plain, the river widening towards the estuary, the seasons, sunsets, tides, the wind-curled waves that incorrigibly plural world. You go ahead. The high ground's not for me. Some say it's the chance of lightning draws you on. But there's lightning sometimes lower down. I've had my moments too, rare admittedly. The tingling spine, the charge of electricity. You go ahead. The high ground's not for me. You climb above the snow line, that's for sure we can see the snow from where we are. And if your mountain fox is an enigma, our foxes are approachable, familiar. You go ahead. The high ground's not for me. It's better that I watch from here, look up to you. And you look back, but never, please, look down. And never, never doubt our seriousness. We too are poets in our way all of
0: us and now two fixed form poems both interestingly imported from malaysian culture first patricia broomfield with a pantoum followed by kate oldfield with the less familiar lewuli
10: Why write a pantoum? The pantoum is a Malay poetry form, popular in the 19th century in England and France. The poem begins and ends with the same line. The journey from start to finish uses repeating lines and allows new ones to thread in along the way. To me, it is a little like knitting with different colours of wool and the completed poem, or garment, has a circular, and somewhat comforting quality. There is music in the repetition. Each line takes on a different tone depending on where it is placed in the work. There is no prescribed length, but usually a set number of syllables, in this case, eight. The rhyme scheme, even though the construction of the pantoum may not seem to be, is simple. A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, B C B C, etc. I still have to copy the pattern down at the side of my page before I write and have an example written by a fellow poet to hand to enable me to check that I have followed the rules. It took me some time to master, if indeed I have, this form, but now I enjoy the freedom that the prescribed pattern allows. That may sound strange, but concentrating on form brings lines to mind that may surprise the poet. The story you write takes on a life of its own. The poet's notebook, compiled by David Stanford Burr, mentions the English poet Henry Austin Dobson, 1840-1921, and his humorous pantoum, In Town, which is worth looking up. This is mine, Dunking Digestives. We dunked digestives in our tea, allowed sunlight to soften smiles, For happiness this was the key. We sat upon the sun-soaked tiles, Allowed sunlight to soften smiles. This simple act connects us still. We sat upon the sun-soaked tiles, The scent of rosemary and dill. This simple act connects us still, The memory of carefree days, The scent of rosemary and dill. It matters to preserve these ways. The memory of carefree days, sometimes silent, at times we chat. It matters to preserve these ways. You wore your yellow-ribboned hat. Sometimes silent, at times we chat. To happiness this was the key. You wore your yellow-ribboned hat. We dunked digestives in our tea.
11: Allooly. L-I-W-U-L-I, is a modern Southeast Asian form of poetry with specific rules for each stanza, of which there are always three. Stanza one has 31 syllables, usually written as prose, but not always, which must be expressed entirely in the imperative, i.e. instructions only and nothing else. Stanza two can be expressed in any way, but it must be 14 syllables written over three lines. Stanza three needs to be 10 syllables written over two lines and must be phrased as a question or questions. The title always starts lurally, followed by your particular title. That all might seem very complicated, but in practice it's not and the results sound extremely simple and straightforward. I like this form because it makes you really delve into the essentials of what you're trying to say, almost with forensic precision, and I like the strict editing process that gets you there. I really enjoy using this form in creative writing workshops, especially with young writers. You can get some wonderfully different stories in a very short amount of time. I chose... The Lually form for this poem, because it reflects the very careful preparation and strategic actions that got me through that tricky social situation. As the form is so succinct, I often enjoy giving them longer titles, as in this one. Lually. On going to a wedding alone and not getting drunk. Alternate. Be wary of a negative outcome if too twinkly with the barman when alone. Surf sobriety slightly. Dancing will highlight the singular hours and the couples. Just one question then. Vodka or champagne?
0: And finally, in this bumper edition, an extract from a reading by Claire Cox, where she comments on her use of form and on form more generally.
12: So I'd like to start with um, some uh, poems that I kind of jotted down between March and October, 2019, which felt like quite historic moment in time. So 6th of March, Zeitgeist. A sparrow whistles in the break between downpours. The neighbour's dog yaps unseen behind our fence, while knives go missing from kitchens and rasp their blades through strangers' spines, and the purple mouths of dog violets gape in a too-hot, buzzless sky, and snarling men pack together, their sameness unassailable. Twitter feeds bristling muscle and knuckle while the overfull water butt spills winter rain and blackbirds drink from the black plastic guttering as hands strap explosives to a bus and there's blood in the gutter, bright red, bright black, brighter than the movies, bright as the righteousness that fills the air and clings like static to my sleeve. That turned out to be an accidental sonnet, fourteen lines in couplets. I did a lot of free writing for this. So so in terms of form, things kind of emerged in the editing process. And I'm also quite conscious of how uh, a series of poems also has form. So in the middle of this set, I serendipitously and possibly consciously, I put maybe the most emotionally charged one. Um, So it's quite dense and see see what you think of this in terms of putting stuff together in not an over-polished form. 7th August of waiting for my sister to call. My colleague's mother died yesterday. This morning, my colleague sent me a poem about her mother's death. Death, we agreed, was a word reserved for us, the daughters of dead mothers, because our mothers had not Departed, passed away, gone on to a better place, been our sad loss, whatever the cards might say, our mothers had died and all is changed. This afternoon, my new friend and I talked for five hours, sun in her blue glass kitchen, Scottish deerhound, collarbone high, eyes of a sorcerer, eyes of a wolf. Madonna lily pollen yellowing his pelt. We talked face to face at her kitchen table, apples green and urgent on the tree outside. My brother-in-law lies in a Copenhagen hospital, punctured lung, left leg in a cage. He's in an induced coma. Every now and then they lighten the sedation. He mouths a few words round the bulk of the tube protruding from his spitless lips, squeezes my sister's hand, my nephew's hand. Newsfeed tells me Trump is heading to El Paso after the shootings. My new friend and I talked of that. Trump, more than the shootings, she had written a poem about the wall, showed it to me. I had nothing to offer. I had nothing to offer about the other poem I saw this morning, the one that was too true, too new. My colleague inscribed her mother's death in a poem and sent it to me. Her icon is a goldcrest." So that was the kind of chunky emotional heart. So maybe a sense of how form sits within a larger scheme of things. And also as all of you know, form sits on the page. White is our friend, so that the this kind of wispy followed maybe as a bit of a breather. Um, Brazil was in flames at the time, so I uh, so I wrote about that. Twenty first August of cauterized tear ducts. Brazil is burning. Smoke over Sao Paulo. Smoke seen from satellites. I used to be called Captain Chainsaw, now I am Nero. A woman, headdress of feathers, disked like the sun, points to the blazing hillside. She weeps, screams out in Pasacho. She wants the media to see the destruction of her reservation, the flames that riot orange across the twilight. Here, daylilies flare orange, as summer slides into autumn the dog has taken to circling and circling the kitchen table always counter clockwise always against the clock against the clock actually breaks the uh, the left-hand margin so yeah i was trying just to see what what that would do in terms of using all those things that are available us to us as poems in terms of the visual as well this is about the sea was prompted by a voyage I did so again a slightly open form less constrained seasick Gannets plunge shallow see sea sea blue sea green sea deep sea scattered light see the slough of the land. Clog my estuaries, Tideline, line, mud bank, waves thick with it, slur my words. Each washing tide coughs me up white bags, white bags that drift like jellyfish, fool the turtle, fool the shark, pack their guts. Drift again, swirl and gather, tumors the size of countries, breaking down and breaking down and breaking down. Immortal particles pump in shrimp blood, in the muscle tongues of oysters, longer than bird time, fish time, whale time, Small enough to breach. Cell skin, seal skin, kelp skin. Lost my grayling, my sea cow, my sea mink, my orc, the ice cliff that carves into my bright polar waters. So I think with all these, it's kind of how does form. Work for against the emotional progress, and and that's an infinitely exciting thing for us to play with. Uh, so I've got a rare example of where I used it, an existing form consciously to see what happened. And again, again, I'm kind of interested in the in the crash between the domestic and the exterior, between emotion and the external world, and all that kind of stuff. So this this is a pantoum, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. But just to recap, according to my Poetry Foundation webpage, uh, is an amazing, a Malaysian form that we have been adapted by French poets. It's portrays and the second and fourth lines are repeated as the first and third lines of the next stanza. So it's a chippy-choppy kind of one, and the final stanza has a repeat of the first and fourth lines. So I was interested in that, because I'm, I'm interested in, in uh, unstable situations, instability, I, this seemed to be an interesting Poem to, to see what happened. Aftershocks, forgetfulness. It's only par- partial, the collapse, this time. Our kettle and cupboards are soft with dust. We've grown accustomed to living. With. Your breath once warmed my sleeping neck. The kettle and cupboards are soft with dust, mounds of chipped crockery and slumped mud. Your breath once warmed my sleeping neck. Ferns sprout from stone. I sew up curtains. Mounds of chipped crockery and slumped mud. All the other beds on the long ward were empty. Ferns sprout from stone. I sew up curtains. Her tiny earlobes were shaped like yours. All the other beds on the long ward were empty. Our window frames are discoloured by rain. Her tiny earlobes were shaped like yours. The midwife cried. Aftershocks, forgetfulness. Our window frames are discoloured by rain. I push past the roof joists lodged in our stairwell. The midwife cried. Aftershocks, forgetfulness. We took turns to make each other tea. I push past the roof joists lodged in our stairwell I've grown accustomed to living with. We take turns to make each other tea. It's only partial, the collapse, this time. This was about the death of my brother from cancer, which I felt kind of compelled to write because it helps you work stuff out. So I've looked, I've revisited this. I'm a big fan of a couplet and I'm a big fan of a set, but but I thought it was interesting to share with you that some examples of how I didn't put any standard breaks in. So this is, and I think it's possibly driven by um, a narrative need. Here's some examples. Thicker than water. In the clamour of a South Bank restaurant, You fixed a kiss to my cheek, called for drinks, face too flushed, enthusiasm awry. You talked and talked, saddened yourself to stillness. Pulsed by the hurt I heard in your veins, I took your part as only blood can. And while we puzzled the future, I watched you trace outlines, bare branches on embankment trees. A light-caught curve, the contours shaping a stranger's skin. Your artist's eye, too tireless, too keen. My brother as a mezzotint. Eager to admire your scan's monochrome tones, you lean forward in your wheelchair, study the luminous screen, eclipsing your spinal cord two dark moons. The titanium caging your neck, pure black. Gray meat spills from your iliac's white wing. The locum's chest is slim, boy-like. His tired eyes rimmed by glasses and concern. He answers our questions with open hands. Not your own oncologist, He's unsure why his prognosis seems new. Returning down the corridor, you say, I'm glad it was you who was with me. Reach across to flatter an old woman on her tiger stripe throw as we pass wheel to wheel. Then you charm from the receptionist, so young and so plump, the secret of her hidden tattoo. treatment. We'll only scan your dorsal spine today. A bleep 206 for the Macmillan nurse. it's the spine causing your symptoms. Take slow release morphine. Top up with Oromorph to help with the pain. A bleep 206. Siobhan will wheel you from cubicle to scanner. there will be a chair. Monica will do the CT scan today. We'll tattoo your front, not your back. Bleep cubicle. 206. L2 and L3 are more involved with the disease. In the slow release, short term, we'll sequence three areas for treatment. The side effects will be the same, vomiting and diarrhea. In the short term, oromorph, top up with pain. It's urgent, palliative. In the short term, a doctor will look at the data, decide side effects, vomiting, palliative, cubicle, urgent. We can only scan your dorsal spine today. Funeral. No order of service, just a card with your name, curlicued and slant, year of birth, hyphen, year of death. Above that, an old test print of yours, quizzing depth of cut, blackness, how acid bites, how resin resists. Figure A points to pale ripples, a thumbprint in negative. Dabbed there momentarily, your brief experiment in flesh.
7: Could I have a question?
8: On, on um, form, are there any particular poetic forms that you may have hated writing in early on, but you love now or vice versa?
12: I think part of what we do as poets is is test ourselves against these things. It's uh, so yes, sestina. I have done very poor sestinas. Uh, there's the little three sestine, the, the the three version. That's not the six version, isn't it? I can't remember what it's called. But forms, I tried villanelles. I've tried conscious sonnets as well. I think they're, they're kind of like apprentice pieces, aren't they? You try and do them to, to hone your skills and see what you can achieve. As I say, I, the pantoum seemed to be something that could further what I wanted to do. Sestina is deeply complicated, and some examples are. Didn't Don Berry get a national poetry competition with a with a sestina that was almost imperceptible? He was he's so clever that the form seemed to be absolutely at the service of what he was seeking to do, as opposed to being upfront. So. I haven't used them particularly, as I say, what I'm doing at the moment is more free writing and then trying to shape what I get. They are fiendish. Occasionally, if you're if one's feeling terribly masochistic, you'll go, oh yeah, I'll just pick six random words and see if I can make a sestina out of it. But sometimes one's up to the challenge as a poet and sometimes it's like doing scales maybe. Maybe you just do them for the sake of uh, technical exercises that uh, hone your skills. But yeah, there's lots to choose from. And as I say, my exploration was to see what might serve what I was trying to do the best. I haven't conquered any of them and I wouldn't say I was proficient, but but I think they're part of what's there for us to use.
0: That's more than enough for this episode. Thank you to all the contributors. More information can be found on poetry worth hearing i hope you've enjoyed listening